have so much to sing about as Christians, amen. What a wonderful, gracious Lord and Savior. Chapter 12, we're going to read in Matthew chapter 12, verse 1 down to verse number 14. And the Bible tells us here at that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn and his disciples were and hungered and he began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. When the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. But he said unto them, Have ye not read what David did when he was in hunger, and they were, that were with him, how he entered into the house of God, and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests? Or have ye not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. But if ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. When he had departed thence, he went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man which had his hand withered, and they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days, that they might accuse him? And he said unto them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep, and if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. Then saith he to the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it forth, and it was restored whole like as the other. And the Pharisees fell down and worshipped him, recognizing he was the Son of God. I mean, wouldn't you think that should be the right conclusion? But instead it says, Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. Father, we just want to thank you today that it is into your presence that we have come. And we stand in honor of the word of the living God. And we pray that you would help us to understand and be gripped by your glory through the pages of Holy Scripture Give us understanding, illumine our minds to grasp the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of thy word. Teach us that we may be instructed and that we may love you more. Lord, I pray that as we leave here today, we would look more like Christ and less like ourselves. For this we ask in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. You may be seated this morning. As we enter into Matthew chapter 12, it really begins a new section a new theme that Matthew presents to us in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ in his ministry, you would think that the hostility that would have arisen around Jesus would have come from the pagan Romans, perhaps a group of atheists or some godless group, but instead the hostility that came against Jesus actually rose from the religious leaders, those who were supposed to know the truth. In verse 1 and 2, they come asking questions of Jesus. And by the time you get to the end of this section, in verse 14, they seek to kill him. How can people who studied the Old Testament, who memorized much of it, miss the truth when it arrived in the person of Jesus Christ? What they read in the Old Testament, you turn me down just a little bit over here. When, when, what they read in the scriptures about Jesus Christ in text was embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, 
the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. When they saw Christ, they saw what Scripture declared in a body. How could they not understand it? How could they not see that? How did they miss it? And, and really the cause of their spiritual blindness and understanding was due to their pride and their self-righteousness that had stirred up inside of Judaism in that day. Their religion had turned into perversion of the truth because of pride. Now what religion is, is not man's valiant attempt to seek after God. Religion is not an honorable thing. Rather, it is a system that men create in order to make themselves acceptable to God. Religion is ultimately man-centered where biblical Christianity is Christ-centered. And, and, and religion will make you think better of yourself. Biblical Christianity will make you think less of yourself and more of Christ. Religion is man-exalting. Biblical Christianity is Christ-exalting. And so religion is man achieving salvation through doing some religious deeds, through their works, reading some creeds, going through some catechism, reciting enough prayers, doing enough religious fastings and other such things. And they look upon those as ways in which they can achieve acceptance with God. And instead of being something honorable to God, they're actually defiance against God. And it is at its heart rebellion against God. It's adding to God's truth. And when you add man's truth to God's truth, it pollutes God's truth. That is why the church must stand solely upon the word of God. We believe in sola scriptura. Uh, the Bible is the sole authority for the church. It is not Pastor Josh that's the authority of the church. It's not other pastors, deacons, trustees, teachers of the church that are the authority of the church. You're not the authority of the church. The word of God is the final authority of the church. We say with Peter in 1 Peter 4.10, if any man speak, let him speak the oracles or the sayings of God. Jeremiah 23.28, it says, he that hath my word, let him speak my word faithfully. When you go to church, there should be a hunger, a desire for the Word of God. Now, how did the Jews become so blinded to the truth? How did they miss the truth of Christ after studying the Word of God so fastidiously for so many hundreds and hundreds of years? And it was for one reason. They added tradition, religious tradition, to the Word of God, and it polluted God's truth. What happened was this. They started with such a high view of God and his commands that they never wanted to break the commands of God. So they said, well, if this is what God's word says not to do, then let's put up some boundaries around that so that we don't even get close to breaking the command. And so their motive started off very pure. They wanted to protect themselves from violating the word of God. But what happened was these restrictions began, began to replace the very commands of God. Uh, they were called the tradition of the elders, commonly known as the halakha, or the collection of the Torah interpretations. This became a massive body of oral teachings about Old Testament, which started as a protective fence 
for the people from violating God's word, but ultimately became a fence that kept people from the word of God. These traditions continued to expand in a mammoth accumulation of religious, moral, legal, practical, ceremonial regulations that literally defied comprehension. So many thousands of regulations that they added. And the more complex and profound they got, the more zealous they got about it and also propagating them. Their motive may have been pure at first, but over time, traditions of men corrupted the Word of God. And you need to always know this. Whenever men add something to the Scriptures, it always begins to not only pollute the Scriptures to the people, but that tradition, that man-made restriction, always usurps the Scriptures. No matter what the group says. That's, that's the stuff they focus on. That's the stuff they promote. That's what they are defined by. People that are in religious systems are deceived and devoted into those systems. This is exactly what you see in this passage before us. They were so passionate about the religious beliefs. They were so passionate about their, their traditions that they could not see the truth when it was staring them in the face. And Jesus responds to them by asking them three different times. Verse 3, have you not read? Verse 5, have you not read? Verse 7, he quotes Hosea. He kept pointing them to the scripture, showing them that the foundation and the litmus test by which everything must be weighed is the word of God. You don't base truth on what the church says. You base it on what God says. And in, 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 in life, I have I've spoken to those in these religious systems, and it shocks me. It just is profound how I can show someone from the Word of God this is true, and they will walk away rejecting the clear teaching of the Bible based on what they have been told by that system. Instead of holding to the Word, they reject the Word that they might hold to their system. And, and, and there are some of you who've come to Lighthouse and you have struggled with certain things because you came out of a religious system that did certain things a certain way. Now, you couldn't go to the Bible and show me verses on those things, but you just know that that's how it was always done. And so because there's things that are different, it, it's hard and, and people struggle to overcome some of that. I've seen people get saved out of certain system works-based systems and they just struggle to break away from things that were, were, were they held, felt binding to them. Maybe a Seventh-day Adventist group or a Catholic or uh, Orthodox church or uh, maybe, maybe a Church of Christ was taking the Lord's Supper every week. Things that were being taught to them, things that they were doing uh, that the Bible doesn't specifically command, but it's a tradition that was placed upon them and they, they struggle to get away from that. Now, for people in these systems, you have to unwind all the external stuff and deconstruct their faith before you, they really can understand the gospel. I have found it easier to lead an atheist to Christ than someone steeped in religion. They're so blinded, it just takes me hours and hours and hours. And I gladly do that because I just know that it's now, if you want to know why it's it, like if, if this is true, that it's that blinding. If you remember back in chapter 11, verse 20 through 24, let me remind us that Jesus came and rebuked three extremely religious cities, Capernaum, Bethsaida and Chorazin, three Jewish religious cities. His home base of ministry was in Capernaum. 
And he said, you will have greater judgment than the pagan cities of Tyre, Sidon, and even the Old Testament city of Sodom, who was known for its homosexual rapings. They will be judged less severely than you religious cities. Their sin was less grievous than your self-righteous sins. And your self-righteousness was actually more blinding than, than what they were blinded by. Their sin was less blinding than self-righteousness. He said, because if I would have come and done the works and miracles there, they would have repented long ago and you would not repent. So just understand the greatest way Satan deceives the world is not through sin, but through self-righteousness. And you know you're in a corrupt system when you come to that church leaving better about yourself, thinking more of yourself, having a high self-esteem, loving yourself more, cherishing, thinking, man, I'm just, I didn't realize how wonderful I was and that though God was created for you. I mean, this is the Joel Osteen message. These are messengers of deception. And you have to understand, you, should, you know you've heard the word of God when you leave humbled and Christ exalting. That's the understanding you must leave with. It's not that God was created for me, I was created for Him. I, I, Jesus said, after you've served God, you should say, I am an unworthy servant, I've only done what I was supposed to do. We are His joyful servants. Amen? So just understand, that's the biblical understanding. Now, there are two incidences in the passage before us today. One is in verse 1 through 9, the other, verse 1 through 8, the other is verse 9 through 14. And in both of these, you will see Jesus elevating the Scripture, and you will see uh, the religious groups elevating their tradition. And it comes down to what truth is based upon. I read this week in a Catholic Answers website, I was spending some time, I've spent a lot of time studying other religions through the years, and um, I say this humbly, but I probably know more about Catholicism than 99% of Catholics in this city. Catholics are not an enemy of mine, but I, I, they're, they're, many of them are great evangelistic opportunities. There's a lot of things that they, and, and, if, and if you've been steeped in some of those systems, I'm not trying to be offensive. Listen, I didn't grow up in a Baptist church, and we're not a denomination, by the way. We are just identified as a Baptist church. We're an independent church, but, but it's the Word of God that must be based upon. And inside of that system, they don't believe uh, the Bible is the sole authority for faith and practice. They, they don't believe in what we refer to as sola scriptura, scripture alone. And we're going to look at that as we jump into some things today. So the first thing I want to show you today is the conflict, the conflict. These two conflicts are both violations of the Jewish Sabbath day regulation. Let me talk about the Sabbath for a minute because Jesus becomes very offensive to them. And really intentionally, Jesus does some things intentionally on the Sabbath day to expose them. In their error. Now, where did the Sabbath come from? Genesis 2, verse 3 says, And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it he had, and the word is Shabbat, he rested. It's the where we get the word Sabbath from, from all of his works which he created and made. So God blessed the seventh day. The word seven actually is a Hebrew word, Sheba. It's the root for Shabbat or Shabbat. And it means to be full, satisfied, good and perfect, like nothing could be added to or taken away without diminishing it. So 
on the Sheba, on the fulfilled and everything is what it needed to be day, Jesus Shabbat, or he rested. Now, Jesus, God didn't rest because, like, he was worn out. You know, the Lord didn't work up a sweat and say, you know, I need to take a day off here. This is going to look carried away. No, he, he created a day of rest to benefit us. <clears throat> and the reason we have a seven-day week is because God created that. It's not in Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam. That's in biblical Christianity. That's where the seven-day week was uh, created. And, and if, if there is no God and there is no Bible, there would never have been a seven-day week. We'd have created a 10-day week. We'd have gone through the moon cycle around the earth, and we'd have said, okay, 30 days or so. We'd, we'd have done 10-day day weeks, maybe had two or three days off, and, and cycled it that way. We would not have done this, and so God defines it this way because this was his intention. Now, the Sabbath was not instituted as a day of worship in Genesis it wasn't until Exodus 16 that the Sabbath was instituted. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, none of them are recorded to have, have observed anything with the Sabbath day. The Sabbath, by the way, is not Sunday. The Sabbath was on Saturday. <clears throat> so it was instituted in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. So God had created it to be a blessing to man, according to Mark 2, verse 27. Uh, but by the time Jesus came, the Sabbath was not a day of rest. It had accumulated so many traditions of men and man-made rules and restrictions that it became the most exhausting day of the week by far. The Sabbath rules were so enormous that the Jewish Talmud, which is the writings of the rabbis, was about 6,200 pages long. It had 24 chapters contained in it that, that dealt just with the exhaustive amount of regulations dealing with the Sabbath. Now, it took a rabbi, a learned rabbi, two and a half years just to study one of the chapters. It would have taken 60 years for them to have studied all, all 24 chapters. That, that's how immense this thing was. It was impossible. People didn't even know what all the restrictions were, so you violated them all the time. By the way, that's why Jesus said in the end of chapter 11, Come unto me, all ye that labor being crushed under these man-made rituals and systems. Now, the religious leader, leaders added all of these, and let me give you some examples of what the Jews in that day were feeling pressed down by. Now, in those days, you could not light a candle on the Sabbath day. Like if you, the Sabbath started on Friday night, went through Saturday. So when the dawn, Friday at sundown, you could not blow out a candle and you could not light a candle. So you had to make sure the candles were all lit by the time you wanted them to be lit before Sabbath started. For that reason, even today, Orthodox Jews will have uh, lights set on timers because they're not allowed to turn them on and off. It was unlawful to move furniture on the Sabbath. You could move a ladder, though, up to four steps only. It was unlawful to wear any jewelry or ornaments on the Sabbath since that could be construed as bearing a burden. They, had a, they didn't have a lot of medicines in those days, but basically when a person became ill with a sore throat or a cold, you could, uh, they would gargle with um, vinegar, uh, was one of the remedies they had, but because, uh, because gar they saw gargling as work, you weren't allowed to gargle it, but you could swallow the vinegar. Gargling was prohibited on the Sabbath. A woman could not look on the, in the mirror on the Sabbath day because if she looked in the mirror according to regulations, she may see a white hair, be inclined to pull that out, and therefore that would be work, and so she could not look in a mirror. It was fine to spit on a rock on the Sabbath, but if you spit in the mud, that could turn into mortar or dirt, and that would be considered work, and so that was a violation. Uh, eating restrictions were among the most detailed and extensive 
you could eat nothing larger than an olive. And even if you tasted half of an olive and it was rotten and so you spit it out, that was considered eating as far as the allowance was concerned. So you could only eat another half olive for the day. Clothes could not be examined by shaking them out because you might find an insect and it could have killed the insect by shaking them. And so that would be considered work. Throwing an object in the air with one hand was permitted, but you could not you could catch it in the same hand, but if you caught it in another hand, that was a labor, and so that was considered work. Jews could not pull uh, off a handful of grain to eat on the Sabbath unless he was starving, which was very difficult to prove because how do you know if somebody's actually starving? That opinion could differ. And, and so the list goes on and on and on. It's just thousands and thousands of these kind of restrictions. It was so exhausting. And sometimes the, the, these restrictions became dangerous for the Jews. For example, uh, in the book of 1 Maccabees, chapter 2, verse 31 through 38, uh, it records how Antiochus Epiphanes, that vile, wicked man back in the day, uh, led the Greek army purposefully and attacked the Jews on the Sabbath because they knew the Jews would not defend themselves. And in one of these battles, they killed over a thousand Jews simply because the Jews wouldn't do anything. Pompey later did the same thing as recorded by Josephus and his antiquities in the first century. It is also interesting that on October 7th, Hamas purposefully attacked Israel on the Sabbath because they knew the Orthodox Jews would not have their electronics on. So when they attacked, they were, the communications were down by many of the Jews. Now, in the midst of hundreds and hundreds of these rules, Jesus is walking through the field, picking some corn and grain, rubbing it in their hands with his disciples, and they're eating. And these guys are having a frenzy over it. How dare you do this? They can't believe what they see. Now, the question is, is Jesus violating the Bible? Deuteronomy chapter 23, 25. And what I find it interesting, I've seen, I've seen atheists and agnostics post stuff through the years and say stuff like this. See, Jesus is stealing. He's stealing from people. And it's like, they, don't, they, they speak about things. They must have Googled something and read something that they don't understand. Uh, Deuteronomy 23, 25 says this. When thou comest into the standing corn of thy neighbor... Then thou mayest pluck the ears with thine hand, but thou shalt not move a sickle unto thy neighbor's standing corn. What he's saying is, uh, God made provisions so that those that were journeying, those that were traveling, those that were poor, would be able to glean from the edges of the, the, the crops. Not, not a sickle, which means you can't like bring a basket and be like, let's load up on this, you know, bring it home. What it was was uh, you could take enough to where you would satisfy your hunger. You take a piece of corn and, and, and eat that and satisfy. It was, it was a way of provision, a way of graciousness. And God promised, you be gracious to them and I will, be, I will provide for you. Right? So, so Jesus was doing what the Bible gave allowance for. He was not violating Scripture. It's, I think Spurgeon had an interesting thought on this. He says, you know, Jesus fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes. But instead of providing a meal for the disciples, they... they were as poor people. They ate like poor people. They walked through and did what uh, those impoverished would do. And, and you know, instead of saying, Jesus, could you just make us a nice steak over here? You know, he easily could have done that. But instead, uh, our Lord is so humble, isn't he? And so Jesus' violation of their Sabbath regulation put them into a frenzy. But you need to know Jesus did not come to break the law, but to fulfill it. In Matthew 5, 17, he said this, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I came not to destroy it, but to fulfill it. And so, secondly, let's look at the clarity. Let's look at the clarity here. In verse number 3, 
It says, but he said unto them, have ye not read what David did when he was hungered and that they were with him, how he entered into the house of God that eat the showbread or the bread of presence and was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priest. Now, what does Jesus's response in verse three and five tell us about Jesus? Notice again in verse three, have you not read verse five or have you not read in the law? What Jesus is doing is showing that what you test things by is the word of God. You, you, you put them up against scripture. That's how you validate whether something's true or not. The error of the Jews came when they elevated their man-made traditions to the level of God's word and in fact beyond God's word because God's word made provision for what Jesus was doing. Do you see how tradition always usurps the word of God? And, and listen, the reason we don't add man-made tradition to the word of God because you can't improve on the word. If it can be improved upon, then add something to it. But any additions always subtract. So, so dangerous. The year of the Jews came when they did that. As I said earlier, we believe in sola scriptura, which means scripture alone is authoritative for faith and practice for the Christian and the church. I agree with the Westminster Confession of Faith when over 150 theologians came together and wrote the following. The whole counsel, quote, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith and life is ex either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by a new revelation of the spirit or traditions of men. We believe that that's, that's exactly true. But that goes against both Orthodox churches and Catholic teachings. They reject Sola Scriptura. They, they believe this is at the very heart of why churches like ours are wrong. They, they, would, they would totally be against that. They believe that tradition and papal decrees are at equal level with Scripture. Now, does the New Testament elevate tradition to be on par with Scripture? Because if you were in one of those systems in the past, you... You, you, you would ask, why did we do some of those things? And why is there a difference? Why, do they, why are there prayers to Mary? Why are there prayers for the dead? What, why are there, where's the teaching of, of purgatory found? It's not found in the Apocrypha. I know they try to pull it out of 1 Corinthians 3. It has no dealing with that. Uh, they, where, where are these, uh, just a list of other things. Why do, we, why do we have images on the wall and people build in those groups and they pray uh, with these images? Why do they do these, all these different things that you don't find in churches like this? You don't go to the Bible and find that stuff. You go to church tradition and find that stuff. That's where that's found. Now, my question is this. Does the New Testament elevate tradition to be on par with Scripture? Because all you have to do is go to the Bible and say, what did Jesus do? Did he elevate? Because they had just, here's the thing. Because what people do is say this, well, you know, churches like yours or Protestant churches, they came around from the Reformation in the 17th century, 16th century. I'm like, oh, really? Yeah, and, and the, church, the church is what gave us the Bible anyway, and they try to, try to roll into some of those ideas, which is totally false. The church didn't give us the Bible. The Bible gave us the church. And so 
you have also, they say, well, show me one verse in the Bible where it says that uh, you're only to base truth on the Word of God. And I say, show me one verse in the Bible that says you should base truth on the church and tradi- or base truth on the Word of God and tradition. There is no verse. But the Bible teaches very clearly sola scriptura, as I will show you. And I could do a long sermon on this, so I'm trying to, I'm, don't want to go too far. So, um, but 13 times in the New Testament, the word tradition is used. It's from the Greek word paradosis. So the question is, in Jesus' day, he had the Old Testament. And then he had a, the, the oral law, this massive Jewish Talmud, all these traditions, the teachings of the rabbis. So did he base truth on the written word or did he just base it also on tradition as well? What, did, did he combine them ever? And what you find is out of 13 times in the New Testament, tradition is used, eight times it's used in the Gospels. Do you know every time Jesus spoke of tradition, he spoke of it in a negative way. Never one time did he admonish tradition. Let me give you the the passage where tradition is used more than any other in the life of Christ. It's in Mark 7. You could read it later for yourself. Mark 7, verse 1 through 13. They come to Jesus and they're like, why don't you wash your hands before you eat? Why don't you clean these? I mean, just all these different rituals they had. And, and, and Jesus rebukes them. And this is what he says to them in Mark 7, verse 8. For laying aside the commandments of God, ye hold the tradition of men. Again, these are religious traditions based on what they thought was the Bible. The, you... you, you, you Lay aside God's commandment to hold your tradition as washing of pots and cups and many other such things like you do, verse 9. And he said unto them, full well ye reject the commandment of God that ye may keep your own tradition. Verse 13, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which ye delivered in much things like you do. So eight times the word tradition is used in the Gospels, zero times is used in a positive way. Now, if you just come to the Bible and you would say, okay, if I were to follow the example of Jesus, and if later he was going to give the church traditions that we were going to elevate to be on par with Scripture to give us teaching, you would think in a world where tradition was so exalted, never has any tradition been exalted higher than what the Jews did, why didn't he do it one time? Of the 13 uses, only three times are traditions spoken of in a positive way in the New Testament. This is what some of these other groups that I've mentioned earlier always go to. 1 Corinthians 11, 2, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 15, and chapter 3, verse 6. But what traditions were based upon in the New Testament was being based upon the Word of God. Let me read for you 2 Timothy 2, 15, where it's used in a positive sense. It says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. The traditions they received were based on the word and the writings of the apostles, the epistles. That's what all tradition must be lined up and based upon. I'll give you an example. One of the traditions we have here at Lighthouse, you want me to give you one? Whenever we read the Bible, when we open up at the beginning of the service, what do we do? Now, does the Bible say you have to stand when you read the Bible? Do you ever read the Bible and not stand? Yes. So why do we do that? Well, because Nehemiah chapter 8, when they read the word, everybody stood up and they read the scriptures. 
It has a biblical foundation. Is it a command for us to follow? No. If, do you have to stand? You don't. But we believe that that's a good tradition for us to have in the church. Why? Because we want to elevate the Word of God as they did in the Scriptures, though it doesn't give us a specific command to do that, and we don't belittle people if they don't. If you go to a church and they don't stand for the reading, I don't look down on them for that. They, they can do whatever they want with those things, but there are certain principles in the Bible that it says, hey, that would be something good to do. Does that make sense? So what happens is people begin to uh, take tradition and they elevate it above the Word of God, and that's where things become dangerous. Now, you need to know this. Jesus never once uses tradition to support his actions or teachings. Though the New Testament quotes the Old Testament 300 times and references the Old Testament over a thousand times in the New, and never one time does it quote tradition, and never one time does it quote the Apocrypha. Not once. So you would think if those apocryphal books which were written between the 400 years between Malachi and John the Baptist in the New Testament, they had those books. Why do you think they named their children Matthew after Ma Matthew Maccabeus and Judas and Judas Maccabeus? They were naming their kids after these famous Maccabean family members. But never they all had these books, but they did not see them as Scripture. It's important to know that. That's why we don't have them in the Bible. Also, all, many other reasons I should say I could share, but let's, let's just keep rolling on. on. The scripture is what the church used to build truth upon. They, you know, when, when there were errors, Jesus would point them out. He would say, uh, have you never read? Have you never read? And he pointed them to the word of God. When Satan attacked Jesus, what did Jesus appeal to? Scripture. It is written. It is written. It is written. What did he quote? The book of Deuteronomy three times. When, when he was rebuking the scribes, he says, you do, or the, the Sadducees, he says, you do err not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. When he rose from the dead and he was on the road to Emmaus and they were like, we just don't understand. He says, don't you know what was said in the prophets and beginning at Moses and in all the prophets, he expounded them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He just went to the scriptures. What should we do then? We must go to the scriptures. You see? This is essential because as I was reading this week where the Catholic apologist said the difference between churches like ours and the Catholic church and others in those systems is it comes down to sola scriptura, which they reject and where we accept. So if you believe the word of God is to be the final authority for all faith and practice, then come to a church like this. If you don't, this probably isn't a church for you. If you believe man-made tradition should be on equal par of papal decrees, things like that, this probably isn't the church for you. But we will not differ. We will not move away from that position. We are rock solid there. And if we ever leave that place, then we've left our rock. Now, Jesus, in response to the Jews' question, responds by asking them if they ever read what David did. Of course they've read this, and so it was kind of a, a rebuke to them by asking them that. And he refers to a story in 1 Samuel chapter number um, 21, verse 1 through 6, when David and his men were fleeing from Saul, they were hungry, they came to the priest Ahimelech, and they said, do you have anything to eat? And he says, the only, only provision we have is the showbread, it was the bread of presence. Now, there was a holy of holies where the temple, or, or God's uh, um, mercy seat was, and then outside of that was the, the holy place, and they had like the, the, the candle there, and they also had the, um, 
the, the bread they would bring in, and these loaves of bread they would make every day. And it was also a provision for the priest. They would present it to the Lord, but it was something for the priests so that they would have provision to eat as well. And so it was, it was uh, confined to them. But Ahimelech, according to 1 Samuel 22, verse 10, inquired of the Lord for him and ends up giving him these victuals, these, these, these provisions. And, and so Ahimelech, listen, came to understand that the preservation of David's life and the men in David's life was more important than ceremonial regulations concerning consecrated bread. In short, the priest discerned the spirit of the law and not simply the letter of the law. You find this in the Bible, don't you? It was never God's intention for people to get divorced. But he gave a bill of divorcement. You know why there was never a writing of divorcement God originally designed? Because, of some, because in the New Testament, the only opportunity to get a divorce is somebody committed adultery continually. Do you know what happened to an adulterer in the Jewish culture back in the Old Testament? They killed him. So then you're a widow. Or a widower, Right? And then you'd have free to remarry. So there was never divorce. Because he just killed them. Does that make sense? Did you know that? <laughs> some, of y'all, some of y'all are like, man, that should have happened. Should have happened. Right? Now, but God's gracious. So God says that's, that's what should be applied, but God was merciful and he let people live. So then they gave a writing of divorcement. So that a person in a relationship like that would not be abused by somebody being continually unfaithful. And, and God has called us to peace and not to be in division. And then in the New Testament, he even gave another provision. He said, if you're married to an unbeliever and they want to depart, let them depart. You're free. You're free to be divorced. If, if you're married to an unbeliever and they want out of the marriage, you're free to let them go. And then if you're free to let them go, you're free to remarry. God's called you to peace. Moses took it a step further, not only adultery, but he gave also for uncleanness. So he extended even further. And what you find was God had a law, but he also gave provision. And, and, and this is where like legalistic people that don't understand the spirit of the law or even the Bible itself. Well, I've even heard people who were in abusive relationships where some pastor or some person, some believer said, you need to stay in that relationship. No, you don't. Get away from that person. It doesn't mean immediate divorce, but it means separation for at least that, right? And if it is abusive, and if it is wrong, then there needs to be provision to be able to separate from that situation. God has called us to peace and not to ever be in some kind of abusive situation. So, so there is the letter of the law, but there's also the spirit of the law because sin is stupid. Because sin mess, messes everything up, doesn't it? You ever get in a situation, for example, I've had people come to our church over the years. I'm digressing from this. So people are like, oh, you can only remarry here, you can do this here. And, and okay, so what happens? What happens? And they say, you know, if you, if you ever get a divorce, you can never remarry. You know, only if they were unfaithful for a long period of time. And that's the only reason. And, and they don't understand the other provision in 1 Corinthians 7 and, and, and Moses' provision and so forth. So, so I'll have somebody sometimes come to Lighthouse, and they'll have three kids. They've been living together for 15 years. They get saved in our church. And they're like, Pastor, we, uh, we were married before, and we got out of those relationships, and we really didn't have a biblical grounds for that. We realize that now. We have three kids. Does God want us to split our family apart now? So, so, so what's God's plan? 
Is it for them to come to the lighthouse, get saved, and now their family gets torn apart? Is that the biblical plan? No. The biblical plan is you've already sinned. You messed that up. But you know what? God's merciful, and he's gracious, and you're not committing continual adultery. Because when you get married, you guys are married. And when you ever, if, you, if you've been divorced, you're not still married to that person. That divorce is final. That marriage is finalized. Period. You're not married to them anymore, biblically at all. It's a, it's, it is a definitive thing when somebody gets married, and it's a definitive thing when they get divorced. And so if those people get saved, they get right with God, then we see them get married and take the right step. And the question is, okay, you've made a mess of your life up to this point. Now what does God want you to do? He wants you to put God first, honor Him. You've made a commitment to this person. You've been together, and you're parents of these children now. Now put God first place and do what's right now. Does that make sense? And that's what the Bible teaches. Now you have some people that get so legalistic in a system. Tell me where God ever told Moses to give him a bill of divorcement. Right? You see the grace of God that extends some reasons for some things? So just understand there, is, there, are, there are unique situations that people can be in, just like walking on the Sabbath, being hungry, and God says, I'm going to make a provision for you. There are provisions that God makes. He did it with David. You're not allowed to eat the showbread, David. It's a violation. Yeah, but, but you eating and being sustained is more important than some regulation. God is merciful. Anybody thankful God's more merciful than we are? <laughs> so after embarrassing them for their inconsistency and showing them that you, like, you, you are so fast on this law, you make a big deal out of these things and and uh, verse number verse number three, don't you understand that David did this and he was innocent to eat that bread? And then he gets another example in verse number five. He says, or have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath day, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? What he's saying is this, you know, on the Sabbath day, uh, the, the priests worked harder than they did all week. They had to sacrifice. It was double sacrifices too. I mean, they, they worked double. And, and there are people today that believe that Sunday is the Sabbath, which it's not. They have all these regulations. They don't realize, I'm working on Sunday. I work every Sunday. Amen? And some of you are police officers. Some of you are um, in the medical field. And people, people you, know, you know, they got me on a rotation on Sundays for a while. And I, I love when people can be off Sundays to be here in the house of God. I think that should be a priority. But listen, um, I'm thankful that there are nurses in hospitals this morning. I'm thankful that there are people working in nursing homes. If they were all Christians, they're like, well, we got to go to church today. It's all right. We'll be back tomorrow. That's not good, honey. Hey, man, I'm glad we have patrolmen out there today. Man, we thank God for folks that do that. And we have people that work military, and they have to go away. Sometimes those that are on reserves, they have to go away once a month. And praise God for people like you. We, we appreciate that. We understand that those things, and it's not, it's not some legalistic system that's so rigid that says, no, you can't, or else there's a lot of other problems because the pastor's working. You know God's working today? Who's holding the world up by the word of his power? Amen? And so uh, I do believe there needs to be time of rest. I do believe that God set a day aside. I do believe that we need to slow down and Sundays is a great day to set aside and say, you know what, let, let us rest today. Let's, let's observe the, the, the spirit of the law in that. We're wonder no law to, 
set Sunday aside as a, as a Sabbath. It's not a Sabbath. Now, after embarrassing them again for their inconsistencies and ignorance of the Scripture, he goes and pushes them even further in verse 6. He says, But I say to you that in this place is one greater than the temple. Now, they, that, that was, uh, clearly he's talking about himself, but they would have thought, well, maybe he's alluding to the Father. You know, maybe he's alluding to God, because the temple's just a structure. God's the entity of worship. Second Chronicles 2, 5, and 6, even Solomon, when he built the temple, said, And the house which I build is great, for great is our God above all gods. But who is able to build him a house? Seeing the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain him. Who, who am I then that I may build a house save only to burn sacrifice before him? You know where the temple is now? It's you as a believer. We, we, his presence dwells in us. So Jesus defined the greatness, his greatness over the temple. And then he says, if that wasn't enough, he says in, in, in verse number seven, but if you had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. Here Jesus quotes the Old Testament book, Hosea chapter six, verse six, when Hosea said, for I desired mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. That's so tremendous. God wants us to have the knowledge of God more than just external things we do. He wants the internal reality. He wants us to know Him. And the knowledge of God comes through Holy Scripture. By the way, Jesus said, one greater than the temple. And remember when they were boasting on the temple, He said, kill this body and kill, destroy this temple. And He's talking about the temple of His body. In three days, I'll raise it up again. But in 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, it has not yet to be rebuilt. He was greater than the temple and is. But you need to know this. There are times God will set aside his laws for the sake of mercy. There are times God could judicially implement his law, but he works it because of mercy. He has the right to do that. He can extend mercy if he wants. He did that with Adam and Eve, right? They should have died when they ate the fruit of the tree. They died spiritually, but physically he let them live on for hundreds of years longer. We receive that mercy every day of our life. We should have died because of our sin, but he lets us continue to live. That's, that's what Jesus said when he said, God sent not his son into the world to destroy the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But God's mercy that holds it back. But the self-righteous legalists could not understand mercy. They, they were so blinded by their pride. And mercy, mercy is the idea of having pity on one. It's, it's kindness and goodwill toward others. It, it feels it when somebody else is hurting. It's like the Good Samaritan that sees the man suffering. You enter into their suffering. You want to help them. You know, and I think about the Lord's miracles. When you study the life of Christ, there are so many kind of miracles he could have done to authenticate himself. But he kept doing miracles that benefited people. Like he would feed them. He would heal them. He didn't have to do that. But he did things that were physically restoring and gracious. Aren't you thankful for such a compassionate God? So Jesus is rebuking them for their lack of seeing the needs of others. And, and then he rebukes them for their lack of understanding. He says in verse 7, If you knew what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guilty. In your lack of understanding of the Word of God, you condemn people that are innocent. You don't understand truth. You don't understand the Word because you're so focused on your systems. I've been in churches like that in, in life where they're so focused on the external, they just miss sight of the people. Matthew 12, verse 8, he goes on. 
He says, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. If, if verse number 6 was vague, verse 8 was like no longer vague. I mean, he says, uh, one greater than the temples here. They're thinking he must be talking about Yeshua. And he says, the Son of Man. The Son of Man is a messianic title from the book of Daniel, speaking of the coming Christ, the Messiah. And he says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. I mean, that is Mike Drop walking off the scene and they are just stunned. It is shocking to me that verse 9 does not say, and they picked up stones to kill him. I mean, that was so offensive, but it was so true. It was, it was the perfect thing to say, as he always said the perfect thing. And so today, I think it's important for me to mention this. Christians are not under the Sabbath day regulations. I know Kettering Hospital is a great hospital, so thankful for their hospital. But it's a Seventh-day Adventist hospital, and, and there are those who hold to very rigid restrictions about the Sabbath day. Let me just mention, Sunday is not the Sabbath. Colossians 2.16, Paul writes about this. He says, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of a new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Uh, we don't, we're not in the shadow of the Old Testament anymore. We're in the image of the new covenant with Christ. He is our rest, according to Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 4. We have entered into Christ. Romans 14 verse 5 Paul is writing because there were a lot of Jews that were struggling. So if you've come out of a system like that I've mentioned before, you know what it's like. You come and if things are not done the same way, you're used to taking the Lord's Supper every week, you're used to doing certain things, and it's like, you know, it just people struggle with any type of things that are different. So he had to, I mean, the Jews were like, this was very hard. And, and he tells them in chapter Romans 14, verse 5, he says, One man esteems one day above another, and other esteems every day alike. Because there were Jews like, hey, we have to worship on Saturday too. And they, you know, but the Sunday's the Lord's day. And they, all these things were struggling. He said, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. You know, there's people that are Seventh-day Adventists. God honors those who honor him. And if they want to esteem one day above another, that's their choice. And they're free to do that. That in itself is not wrong. But it's wrong when you take your preference and create a doctrine that is forced upon other people now. Does that make sense? If you have a preference that you feel very convicted about, honor God with that. He'll bless you for those convictions. The problem is, is when you place your convictions as standards that now everybody else has to live by. I'll give you an example. Like we're a Baptist church, but like I said earlier, we're not a denomination. We're an independent church. I'm a biblicist over a Baptist all day long, 10 out of 10. Uh, we are a Bible church. You could name Lighthouse, Lighthouse Bible Church, and I would be totally satisfied with that, just as really as much as Baptist. We have Baptistic doctrine, but that you need to understand that. Okay. Now, if, if God wanted every church to be Baptist, he would have put it in the B-I-B-L-E. And if it's not in here, and you make that a law that everybody should follow, you've done nothing different than the Pharisees. Because in your desire to protect, you've now defiled doesn't offend me if somebody has a name that's not, and well, I think everybody in church should wear a suit and tie. I should have wore a tie today. Just to make the point. Um, you know, everybody should wear a suit and tie. Hey, if you feel like you want to wear a suit, praise God. If you feel like you don't need to do that, then that's your choice. Yeah, you know, one of the biggest things people call about is say, hey, uh, you know, do you have any dress restrictions there at church? I'm like, yes, we do. Uh, cover thy nakedness. You know, just, just be clothed, right? Just cover up. 
Come right. We don't want to see it. So, but, um, but we, we need to be very careful when, because people can have standards, preferences, but if you've grown up in one of those churches where it becomes somewhat legalistic about things, they always begin to focus on those externals more than the internals. And those churches begin to die on the inside. And you have to be very careful of those things. And so today, today Christians are not under Sabbath day regulations. It's important to understand that. Uh, we don't deserve the Sabbath because no, not one New Testament command in the New Testament about the Sabbath. All Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament except the fourth, which is the Sabbath. All Ten Commandments are repeated except the Sabbath. By the way, all the other Ten Commandments are moral laws. The Sabbath is the only ceremonial law that's of the Ten Commandments. No Sabbath rules are given in the New Testament. No instruction about behavior on the Sabbath are given in the New Testament. In Acts 15, when the Jerusalem Council decided what would be required of the Gentile believers, the Sabbath requirement was never instituted. The apostles never commanded anyone to observe it. They never chastised anybody for violating it. It was gone. Except for one thing, we don't, the only thing the Sabbath is, is designed for today is when Saturday rolls around, we should stop, look back, and remember that God is our creator. That's what the Sabbath is, a day of rest and to remember your creator. But when Jesus rose from the dead, it's the reason why we worship on Sunday instead of Saturday is because a greater work than creation happened on that third day. Jesus rose again from the dead. And today we worship on the Lord's day because we remember Christ who rose again from the dead. Now, when Jesus rose from the dead was on Sunday morning, he came and appeared unto his disciples on that morning. And then he went an entire week without revealing himself to them, bypassed the next Sabbath, showed up on the following Sunday, met with them, establishing the pattern of meeting with the Lord on the Sabbath day. The New Testament church began to meet on the Sabbath or on, on, on Sunday, the Lord's day. Acts 20 verse 7 says, upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them. First Corinthians 16 2 says, upon the first day of the week, they came and gathered as every man had in store. They uh, gave their offerings. Revelation 1.10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day when God came and gave John the prophecies and the Lord's day became Sunday. So that's why we do that. Now, let me give you a final conclusion as we kind of close out this section in verse 9 through 13. After teaching God's desire of mercy over the law, he now gives them a tangible example. A tangible example. Because to the Jews, you could only save life. You could only perform medical work if, it, if somebody's life was on the line. But if it was like something that they weren't going to die from, they had to wait till the next day. And if it, they were going to die from it, you just had to do enough work to stabilize them until the next day. Well, here's a guy with a withered hand. Atrophy had taken hold. His hand was no longer in use. And so uh, these men, they asked Jesus, is, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? Because they want to accuse him. And so they were so close-minded at that point. And Jesus highlights their hypocrisy in verse 11. He said unto them, What man shall there be among you that shall have a one sheep, and if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, he'll not take hold and pull it out? If you have a sheep fall in a pit, you guys are going to pull it out. And they're all like, well, you know. And then in verse 12, he says, How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath days. And they had nothing to say. You know, Christianity places value on people's lives. One of the things I've learned as I've studied other religions is this. There are a lot of other religions in the world that have no compassion. Hinduism is one of them. You know in Hinduism, in their caste system, a beggar is not given food because it would interfere with his karma and prevent him from the suffering that he needs to get to the next stage of his life. 
Do you know they will not kill a fly because that's a reincarnation of somebody at a lower form of life who needs to go through that so that they can come to a higher form of life. Rats are not killed because that for the same reason. They, so they let rats contaminate their food. Cows are seen as sacred. They even drink cow urine. It's an incredible thing. And, 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 and why people are starving. India would not be in the poverty it is if it just had biblical Christianity implemented. It has oppressed its own people by a false teaching that causes people to suffer. And in a similar way, the Pharisees despised other human beings showing more compassion for a sheep than a crippled man. That's what false religious systems turn into. Jesus calls this man with a withered hand. It's clearly not a life and death issue. He doesn't go around the point of conflict. Rather, he brings the guy into center stage. and He's like, reach out your hand. The guy's hand is restored. Verse 13, then saith unto the man, stretch forth thine hand. He stretched it forth. It was restored whole like the other. He shows the people the perfect display of God in flesh. This is the will of God. That, that, that God would do good on the Sabbath day. It'd be like somebody sitting in their house, so fastidious on some Sabbath regulation, seeing their older neighbor shoveling snow, but they're like, yeah, it's a Sabbath, I can't get out of work. And this old man's out there struggling, hurting. You know what the merciful and gracious and good thing to do would be? Grab your shovel, go out there and help him finish it. Right? That's, 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 the, that's the spirit of God. That's what he would want to produce. And so the response to mercy, the most unexpected group, the religious group, what did they do? Then the Pharisees went out, held a council against him, how they might destroy him. They want to kill the one who's that merciful. So as I close, in Matthew 12, we see Jesus comes face to face with the religious system. Jesus goes into the system and he doesn't fit. Those who he came to should have received him, but he came into his own and they, they received him not. And the reason being is because they added man-made tradition to the word of God and you can't improve on it. Once you add something, you diminish it. Make sure that as you study the scriptures, that it will cause you to become more like Christ. What I mean by that is this. There are some people who become very intellectual about the Bible. They, they read, they study, but their spirit doesn't reflect grace and mercy. It reflects almost a legalistic coldness. That is not, if, if you can grow in the word and you don't grow more like Christ, you're not growing. You should walk away from the word looking more like Jesus here in Matthew 12 and not like the Pharisees and Sadducees. You should be a loving, gracious person, not a critical, condemning spirit and attitude of others. Does that make sense? So just, just evaluate that. We all have to test that. Um, secondly, is um, I always know when somebody's in a system. I always know when somebody's grown up in a system. And here's the litmus test every single time. I ask people this question. I've asked this hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times throughout my life to people all over, all over the place. I ask them this question. It always defines for me if they're in the system. I say, if you stood before God and he said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Every time somebody who's been in the system will respond like this. Well, I think, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I've, you know, read a lot of the Bible. I, I've been baptized, taken the Eucharist through catechism. You know, and they, they begin to go through the, the things they've done. 
They don't bring up Jesus. They don't bring up his death, burial, and resurrection. They're, they're, they're defining for me the resume that they've put together. You ask a biblical Christian that? So tell me, if you stood before God and he said, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? You know what a biblical Christian would say? I'm not worthy. I have nothing to offer God. There's nothing that I could do to make myself acceptable to God. Jesus Christ died for my sins, was buried, and he rose again. And it's only by his abundant grace that he saved me. I forget to sit down with a man in my office in his 20s, and I said, going through some passages with him and I said let me ask you if you stood before God would you be innocent or guilty and he said be guilty and I said if God said why should I let you into heaven what would you say and tears just started pouring down his face I mean just broken it kind of set me back a little bit I mean it, his heart was wrenched he said you know what I'm not worthy to be saved <laughs> and man I smiled over my soul I said you're exactly where God wants you to be you're savable you're, you're able to be saved it's when you come to the end of yourself that you become the beginning of Him. It's Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace are we saved through faith, yet not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man would boast. If you take yourself and your works from your ability to save you, then what do you have left? If God says, how do I let you into heaven? You can't through your works and you can't do it yourself. What do you have left? You have nothing. The only thing at that point you can do is say, then God be merciful to me, a sinner. Right? It's Titus 3, 5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Today, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you would have answered wrong, you're, that, that's not good. You need to get that clarified today. We're going to have men and women standing at these doors. You can just walk up and say, hey, can I talk to somebody? I'd like to have some clarity in the Bible on that just so I can know for sure. Because there's one thing you don't want to leave here today not knowing is how you're going to get to heaven. And we can show you from the Word of God, friend. I grew up all my life believing that I had no understanding. I would not have known how to answer that until I got grounded in the Word of God and knew Christ as my Savior. Yeah.